Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We are your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the murders at Fox Hollow Farm. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee, and let's dive in. In 1994, the mother of Alan Broussard contacted private investigator Virgil Vandegraaff. She contacted him to talk to him about looking into the disappearance of her son. Not even a week later, another mom contacted Virgil as well, saying that her son Roger Goodlett had been missing as well and wanted him to look into it. What Virgil found interesting was that these cases had a lot in common. Both of the men looked very similar, they were around the same age, and they had a similar lifestyle. Additionally, they'd both gone missing from gay bars in downtown Indianapolis. Virgil connected with Mary Wilson, who was an investigator at the Indianapolis Police Department, to investigate the disappearances of what ended up being multiple men from the area in the early 1990s. All of them around the same age, similar lifestyles, and had been last seen at the gay bars. In the fall of 1994, Roger's friend, Tony Harris, spoke with the family and said that he was going to try to help find Roger and figure out what had happened to him. So he made a lot of missing person flyers and hung them up all over town at gay bars that Roger had been known to visit and to frequent. One night while Tony was out, he had noticed a man that was sitting at the bar and he was staring straight ahead, very creepily, at the posters that had been hung up. Tony was like, this guy's really creepy. I just get a bad feeling from him. So I'm going to approach him. When Tony approached him, the guy introduced himself as Brian Smart. And they talked for a while. And Tony was really not feeling so great about this man. But he's like, I'm going to go home with Brian. He offered. We'll go home with him. And they go out in the city down some country roads and eventually reach this place called Fox Hollow Farms. When they get there, Brian tells Tony, this is a house that belongs to my boss. He's out of town, so I'm hanging out here. We can hang out here too. So they go inside to the indoor pool. And when they walk in, Tony is surprised to see that there are several mannequins lying around in all different positions. And I'm sure he felt like they were watching him because I would. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Mannequins are creepy. Sure, we're going to use them in professional settings for, you know, clothes and displays. But I think anyone would be a little taken aback if they went to someone's house and they had a bunch of mannequins out and by their pool. I Yes, I agree. But Brian had an explanation for this. He said that his boss did not like to be alone, so he had mannequins everywhere to keep him company. Right, and I mean, what a good way to play it off is it's your boss's mannequins. It's not you. It's They're kind of weird. I'm maybe house-sitting and staying here, but they're the weird ones, not me. <laughs> Tony and Brian ended up having sex together. Part of this sex included autoerotic asphyxia, which is known as a sexual practice involving suffocation that is almost to the brink of death. This was obviously something that really kind of freaked Tony out a little bit. I think it would freak out just about anybody unless that's what you'd already previously consented to. Right. And I'm sure, you know, just the combination of him already kind of having a weird vibe, seeing the mannequins and then this, I mean, yes, 
everybody has their sexual preferences, but this one I would imagine is a little bit less common, especially in just one night stands. While they were there, Tony ends up telling Brian that he is pretty sure Brian is the one behind the disappearances in the Indianapolis area. And Brian just kind of laughs and goes, nobody's going to believe you. I've been getting away with this for a while. You feeling like you have this suspicion isn't going to change anything. Right. And you know, what Brian is kind of saying is if he is connected, you know, to the murders that have been happening, the disappearances, that is, there wasn't a whole lot of investigation going on until Virgil and Mary started really looking into it. A lot of it got written off as because these men were gay, they were living this high risk lifestyle and their disappearance resulted from their partying. And that's kind of on them, which is just such a horrible way to go about it. I don't really care what your lifestyle is. If you get kidnapped and murdered or murdered by someone, there needs to be some type of justice. Well, and I mean, something that I just, I'm sure we all are thinking about, it was the 90s and they didn't have as much consideration as they do now for many people. I mean, even recently we've had issues with obviously victims being blamed for the situation for them putting themselves in the situation and it's not really you don't purposely put yourself in a situation to disappear or to be murdered it's just people suck and they do terrible things to others right and i mean we're erica and i are from indiana i think it's safe to say that there's still a lot of prejudices here and there's still a lot of there are still a lot of prejudices being worked out and i'm sure that had some type of role in it as well. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. And so at this point, Tony ends up somehow getting out of there without actually being attacked by Brian. He is able to leave and he immediately goes to the police and tells them, hey, I think that this is the guy that's been making all these other people disappear. And I think based on what Abby's already discussed, police kind of half-assed looked into it and they couldn't find the home that Tony had been describing. They couldn't find anybody by the name of Brian Smart. And so they were like, there's not really anything that I can do. Tony wasn't really going to just let it go though. His friend was missing and there were people still actively going missing. So he continued to still kind of look into it. He did not see Brian again for a very long time, but Brian continued to contact Tony. So he would call Tony from cell phones, pay phones, and try to just talk to him about different things. And at this time, these phone calls were not traceable. So nobody could figure out where these calls were coming from. Brian kept dropping hints to Tony about people that he had killed or why these certain men kept disappearing. Like he was kind of taunting Tony is what it sounds like to me. Then in November of 1995, Tony sees Brian again. And this is as Brian is leaving a bar. So Tony follows him to his car and gets his license plate number. And calls police and says, this is the guy that you want. And police look into it and they end up being able to identify the man as Herb Baumeister. 
Herbert Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947 to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister of Indianapolis. Um, he was the oldest of four kids and apparently his younger childhood was relatively normal. But once he started getting into the preteen teenage years, he started being a little different. He was apparently really into some kind of creepy dark stuff. He had a thing for dead animals and peeing on stuff. Um, there were instances where he peed on his teacher's desk put a dead crow on her desk. He eventually gets evaluated medically and they determine he is schizophrenic and has multiple personality disorder, but is not treated for it. Yeah, I was looking into that actually. Schizophrenia at the time was treated with electroshock therapy. So it's possible that his parents didn't want him to be subjected to that kind of treatment, which thankfully, obviously nowadays we've completely gone away with. But at the time, that was what psychiatrists always resorted to and mental institutions believed worked for individuals. Obviously, it is very clear now that that does not work, but that is potentially why no treatment was sought for this disorder. Right. And for that, I get, you know, um, I will say, and you can't tell someone to be put on anything. They did have medication for the multiple personality disorder at this time which they did not pursue. That's their choice, you know, obviously. But just the point of it is that he was, Herb was having some issues and personality issues. And as far as we know, it just kind of went untreated, no counseling. And so it just progressed. In 1965, Herb went to Indiana University and ended up dropping out his first semester. He did end up returning back to IU in 1967 to study anatomy and then ended up dropping out again. However, while he was there, he met Juliana Sater, who was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time student. They began dating and got married in 1971. Herb was still having some issues, though, and six months after they got married, his father checked him into a mental institution where he stayed for two months and was released. He kind of was in and out of jobs for a while. So at one point, he worked at the Indianapolis Star as kind of a basic office person. And he ended up leaving here and getting a job at the BMV. However, he was terminated from the BMV after he peed on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana at the time. And it made people there think that maybe he was the one who peed on a manager's desk prior that they couldn't prove who did it. The couple went on to have three children, Marie in 1979, Eric in 1981, and Emily in 1984. Apparently, he was a fairly good dad. He was a little erratic, but he was a pretty basic dad. In interviews, it talks about him buying Christmas presents for his kids and making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for them. Nothing too strange with the children. While Herb was still employed at the BMV, Juliana had quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom. However, when Herb got fired, she went back to work and he was a temporary stay-at-home dad. And during this time period is when Herb took up a lot of drinking and he ended up going out to the gay bars down in Indianapolis from their home quite a bit. In September of 1985, Herb had actually been charged in a hit-and-run accident where he had been driving drunk. And then about six months later, he was also charged with stealing a car from one of his friends and for conspiracy to commit theft. But he really didn't serve any time for either of these. It was kind of just like a don't do it again kind of thing. During this time, he was bouncing between a lot of different jobs. And then he started working consistently at a thrift shop. 
when he was working there he really didn't like the job he felt like he could be doing more with his life he's like this is kind of a crappy job i deserve more and he then later realized well maybe i could make some money doing this so over the next three years he starts working on building his own business during this time at some point his father did end up dying and there wasn't anything about how this really affected him if he really went through grief or if he just kind of accepted it or if it was a really hard time i i don't really know Um, but it could have absolutely been a stressor for him. Then in 1988, Herb and his wife borrowed $4,000 from his mother in order to be able to open their own independent thrift store named Save-A-Lot. This was a store that they stocked with gently used clothing, furniture, and many other things, and they also had a percentage of the store's profit going to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. One thing that I want to point out is if you look up the history of Save-A-Lot, it no longer includes him as a founder or having any part in this business. Right. And I don't really know how big of a chain Save-A-Lot is, but when I read this, I was like, oh, Save-A-Lot. I know that. Like, I know of it. Um, I'm around Fort Wayne, Indiana, but definitely something I've heard of and seen. Yeah. With having Save-A-Lot as a business they were able to save up enough money and buy their dream home in 1991 at Fox Hollow Farms. So this was 18 acres with five bedrooms and an indoor pool. Sounds like my dream home. To have 18 acres and an indoor pool, that's all I could ask for. Around this time, Julie and Herb were having a lot of different issues with their marriage. Herb had been treating Juliana as an employee, and he had just been yelling at her, and she decided to kind of take a step back in owning the business, but obviously that caused a lot of stress on their marriage. One thing that Juliana has also noted is that during the course of their 25-year marriage, they only engaged in sexual intercourse five to six times, and they produced three children. From all accounts, it sounds like throughout the marriage, they were having some issues. There were obviously some ups and downs with the success in the business, but there was a lot of stress happening. They were relatively distant, and Herb is reacting to this. He's not acting completely normal. With this distance, there was time periods where Herb was staying by himself at the farm. Each summer for a little bit in each of the months in the summer, Juliana and their kids would go stay with Herb's mom at Lake Wawasee at her house. She had a condo up there. And it was during this time that Herb really starts going out and drinking in Indy and frequenting the gay bars down there. So flash forward back to when Tony had gone to police with the license plate number and they had identified Herb. Detective Mary Wilson had gone to visit Herb at one of his thrift stores and it She noted that when she arrived, Herb was really shaky and obviously seemed like he had something to hide. It made him really nervous. She ends up telling him that she has evidence of him being seen at the bars at the time of the disappearance, and he starts to panic. And she said it was very evident that there was some panicking. It's kind of believed that maybe he was just panicking not necessarily because he had been committing any crimes, but just the fact that he had a wife at home and three children and he was frequenting gay bars. And so now it was kind of uprooting his lifestyle that he had kind of tried his best to portray. Investigators, police go out to Herb's house and talk to him. And they say, 
we want to search your property. And Herb says, no. (laughs) So then they ask Juliana, and she refuses it as well. She's hearing these claims, and to her, while Herb has been kind of up and down, she's not convinced he has murdered anybody by any means. However, as everything continues and Herb starts to be a little bit more unhinged from these allegations. It puts a stress on their marriage further. And in June of 1996, Juliana is starting to get really concerned with Herb's behavior. He's being really erratic and acting even more out of character, even more out of character from the allegations. And she ends up filing for a divorce and going to police and giving them consent to search the house. And one of the reasons they were really eager to go check it out is because Juliana tells them of this instance that happened in 1994 when their son Eric, who was 13 at the time, actually had found a human skull in the woods and brought it and showed it to Juliana. And they went to look at the area where he found it and found a partially buried human skeleton. She talked to Herb about it and he basically said that the bones were from a medical school skeleton that was once owned by his father. However, he did not give an explanation to why they were there. And then later on, they were all gone. And Juliana just kind of assumed maybe an animal took them off. And she had forgotten about it until the erratic behavior just tipped it over. Following this, police do go and search the property while Herb is spending time at his mom's condo at Lake Wabasee. Police search and in the woods on the property, they find the remains of 11 men and are able to identify four of them. These four men were identified as Roger Goodlett, age 33, Stephen Hale, age 26, Richard Hamilton, age 20, and Manuel Resendez, age 31. All of them had frequented the same bars as Herb and all went missing on days that corresponded with the time that Juliana and the kids were away. It was a few years later in 1999 when DNA testing allowed officers to identify four additional victims. They were able to identify 20-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Wayne Broussard, 31-year-old Jeff Allen Jones, and 46-year-old Michael Kern. So now the news of all these bodies being found is coming out and everybody's pretty much aware that Herb is the one that had committed these crimes. So he decides that he's going to flee to Canada and he goes there and writes a three-page long suicide note where he talks about how his marriage was, he'd failed his marriage, he'd failed his business, he'd failed his children. And he ends the note by saying, quote, I'm going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep, end quote. But there was absolutely no mention of any of the skeletons that had been found on the property or any of the murders or disappearances, no confession or anything. And he ended up killing himself on July 4th, 1996. So overall, they had found 11 bodies on the property, but police believe that Herb could have killed up to 27 individuals. Apparently, Herb presenting himself as Brian had told Tony that it was closer to 50 individuals. Police also believe that there is a high probability that Herb was the I-70 strangler, which resulted in nine other men being murdered in the 80s. Unfortunately, none of these have officially been connected to Herb, and there are still many unsolved cases that Herb is speculated to be a part of. There are also still the three remaining identities of victims on his property that have been unidentified. So hopefully we'll be able to see some closure over the next few years for families. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.